You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Mosaic Moment. Today, we are going to be talking with Dr. Yukonwa and our newest policy expert, Jordan Shapiro. Um, And we're going to be exploring why breaking up big tech will not prevent algorithmic harm to society. The catalyst for this episode is actually an essay that Dr. Yukonwa wrote for PPI. Um, So we'll make sure to link that in the show notes. And for those of you who don't know, The Mosaic Economic Project is a network of diverse women with expertise in the fields of economics and technology. Mosaic programming aims to bring new voices to the policy arena by connecting cohort members with opportunities to engage with top industry leaders, lawmakers, and the media. So I'll go ahead and introduce today's speakers. Jordan Shapiro is a data and economic policy analyst here at the Progressive Policy Institute. She's a self-described techno-optimist who believes that through ethical technology and data, we can build effective governance ready to meet the exciting challenges of the modern era. Prior to joining PPI, Jordan worked as a data and innovation research consultant, supporting businesses and nonprofits to understand the interplay between technology and public systems. Jordan has a master's degree in international politics from Aberystwyth University in Wales, UK, and a BA from the University of Rochester. Follow Jordan on Twitter at JD underscore Shapiro. Now, <laughs> Dr. Yukonwa is an assistant professor of marketing at the University of Southern California's Marshall School of Business. A quantitative modeler, Professor Yukonwa re- researches how algorithmic bias, algorithmic decision making, and consumer reputations impact firms. She's the winner of the 2018 Eli Jones Promising Young Scholar Award and a finalist for the 2019 Howard AMA Doctoral Dissertation Award. In a prior life, Professor Yukonwa was an industrial engineer, financial analyst, and finance executive at Walt Disney, Citigroup, Viacom, and Kaplan. She holds a PhD from the University of Maryland, as well as an MBA, MS, and BS from Stanford University. Follow Dr. Yukonwa on Twitter at at Kalinda Yukonwa. All right, so let's get into the conversation. I'm going to leave it over to y'all to start um, engaging in the in the discourse. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Jasmine. Thank you, Dr. Yukonwa, for speaking with us today. Well, thank you uh, both to Jordan and Jasmine for inviting me to be a part of this discussion. I'm honored and happy to be here. Really excited to chat a little bit more about algorithms uh, regulating big tech and what might be the pros and cons of algorithms in society. Uh, So let's just jump right in. Could you talk a little bit about for our listeners what an algorithm actually is? Sure. So an algorithm um, at the heart of it is just basically a list of instructions to accomplish some kind of goal or uh, output. So for example, a recipe for your favorite dish that's an algorithm. Uh, but these days, people typically think of when they say algorithm, what they're typically referring to colloquially is uh, uh, our programs uh, and artificial intelligence to accomplish some kind of objective. You know, if you think of machine learning uh, behind some of the things we use today, like your GPS, 
uh, your favorite GPS or, you know, through smartphones or iPhones where they're figuring out uh, what you're doing, where you're going next, et cetera. Algorithms are driving many of those types of technologies. So when we talk about algorithmic harm, our GPS is a really great innovation and it's really helpful for our everyday life. What could possibly be harmful uh, about these uh, pieces of code and objectives? Yeah, I agree with you, Jordan. A lot of these uh, algorithms produce benefits like GPS has helped you to get to your destination. A recommendation system on Netflix will help you to find new movies. There might be an algorithm that might help you to determine what's the uh, the, the best uh, course of action if you're trying to build something online. But where the harms come in is could potentially come in are when you have algorithms that are making key decisions, especially key decisions for people that in some way might be based on what social group they're in, in addition to their own efforts. So for example, if you're talking about, uh, say you're applying for a loan online at an online bank, and you put in that application that you have great credit history, you have paid all your bills on time, and then you, the application might also ask some certain aspects about you, which might indicate that you're female, or it might indicate that you're a minority. And then you apply and send it in, and it, it says you're denied a loan. Now suppose that you uh, take your application and you didn't change anything on that application, but now you put in that instead of a woman, you're a man, or instead of a minority, you say that you're white. Now, technically speaking, in the realm of lending, they're not supposed to ask you these questions, but just follow along with me with this thought. Yeah. And you, so nothing else has changed about whether you can pay your bills on time, what, nothing has changed about your credit score, you send it in, and now it says you approved for the loan. The fact that there's two different decisions made simply because you have changed uh, association of what group you're with is an example of social harm. And this is an example of algorithmic unfairness or algorithmic bias. Another way that an, uh, algorithms can produce social harm, and this is related to the paper that I recently wrote along with uh, and for uh, the Progressive Policy Institute uh, is looking at some of the, the things that have happened recently with Facebook and other large big tech firms where there's a concern that the algorithms and using Facebook as an example is sending harmful information that's causing destructive behavior. For example, extremist, extremist content to uh, people that might incite them to transgressions like what happened on January 6th with the, the um, insurrection, I'm going to call it insurrection at the Capitol. Uh, or there's been another recent story about um, young women engaging in um, harmful behavior in terms of eating, you know, uh, because of what they're seeing on Instagram. Well, this is another example of algorithmic harm because certain, if the algorithm gets into a pocket where it's sending negative information, harmful information over and over and over again to people through their social media feeds, then it's producing harms because people will then believe that's the world where I'm in a world, for example, as a young woman where I'm supposed to starve myself to death because I keep seeing these images and these uh, this information saying I should starve myself to death. I should be anorexic. It's a good thing. This is another example where algorithms can actually produce social harm. It's really interesting to, to hear about how 
these algorithms that we're using every day, people check their Facebook news feeds all the time, uh, might not be all positive, uh, even though we gain a lot of joy out of, you know, being able to look at our news feed and get new information. Something that's really interesting to me is that society does have bias when we have these historic uh, situations whereby, you know, we may be did decline loans for minority populations or for women. And so if that's what our society uh, is actually like, is it possible to avoid teaching that to these algorithms? Uh, I believe it is because ultimately uh, my point of view, knowing how algorithms work, um, that we as a society, we as human beings can program these algorithms to do uh, whatever they want whatever we want, I should say. But because the data that they're learning from, because ultimately algorithms are uh, are learning from data just like a baby might learn from the information around him or her uh, or them, and then they uh, grow uh, based on that. You, the, a great way to think about algorithms is uh, that they're like babies and they're learning from their environment. They're learning from the mm-hmm. data. So as, as long as the environment for a baby is... Uh, you know, full of harm and examples of harm, that's what the baby's going to learn. In the same way with algorithms, as long as the data, which it's its environment, is full of harm and examples of harm or negative things, that's what it's going to learn. But analogous to a baby, you can take a, a, a baby and, and put that baby in a very positive environment instead, where it's where the baby's learning positive examples less harmful examples and that's what the baby's going to learn same thing with an algorithm you can put uh, an algorithm in a positive environment with positive examples uh, less harmful examples through the data and the, the algorithm will learn from there the other way that so so certainly all of this to say that if we have more attention to what is the data that's being fed to these algorithms and are are there ways we can make that data more representative of the true world, if, if the data can be less uh, derived from embedded uh, biases that we see in society or embe- embedded examples of uh, lack of fairness in society, if we can de- deconstruct the data so that it removes those things, then we can reduce the degree of bias. Will it completely remove bias? I don't know if there's an uh, if I I don't know if there's a situation where. I can see where it completely removed bias because at the end of the day, algorithms are designed by people, data is generated by people, data is collected by people. And so there is always going to be some kind of human element that can't be divorced from the AI, from the algorithms. But are there ways that you can dramatically reduce it as long as you're aware and you bring attention to it? Absolutely. And I've seen that time and time again. Oh, that's really interesting. You know, as a data processor myself, I often contend with these issues of what pieces of data are valuable um, or what pieces of data might produce bias. And it can be really hard to know from the outset uh, what that really looks like. Do you have any examples of folks who are establishing standards for what it looks like to make uh, an unbiased or less biased data set? Yeah, because really, I think uh, it's going to be about less bias, uh, less bias. Uh, as opposed to unbiased. It may, it, it may be very difficult to attain 
completely unbiased data. But uh, there are certainly many examples where uh, that can be achieved. So for example, um, and, and, and by the way, I want to make a very, very important point in terms of reducing bias. It's not just about the data. Um, I think that's a common mis, uh, misconception that, oh, if we fix the data, then the bias is going away. Everything's great. Yeah. And everything's great and happy and we have uh, un, uh, we have fair outcomes. Uh, very much so. And there's a lot of disagreement, in, to, to be quite honest, in the AI community about that because there's a lot of people who are experts with AI who believe it's all about the data. But in my strong opinion, based on my experience and my research, it's also about the design of the algorithm. So you can theoretically have a completely unbiased, if there's such a thing, data set and still produce bias because the algorithm is set up in a way that uh, usually unintentionally, I don't believe people are intentionally designing bias in their algorithms, but yet can produce that, that bias nonetheless. And so I think as a result, in terms of solutions, the examples are about debiasing the data or debiasing the way the data is collected or redesigning the algorithm. And sometimes it's doing both. Um, examples of debiasing the data include just simply, um, there's some uh, standard uh, st statistical and econometric methods that are already there that have been there for decades about ways to debias the data. So something as simple as making sure it's more representative of the population that you are uh, applying the algorithm to. A very uh, simple case study of that was um, it was research done by Joy Bulamwini and Tina Jabru, papers called Gender Shades, where they're looking at facial recognition algorithms. Yeah. Uh, these are the algorithms where, you know, it's looking, taking a scan of your face or a scan of your picture and, and the intent is to recognize you for some purpose. So if you have like a smartphone, instead of typing in your um, password, you just hold the camera up to your face, it might recognize you and let you into your smartphone, for example. So that's a facial recognition algorithm. Well, in their study, they found that with some uh, very large companies, some of the biggest like uh, IBM, Amazon, Microsoft with their facial recognition software and algorithms that based on this uh, experiment where they're auditing the algorithms that they produce large error rates for people who uh, were not white, you know, the darker the skin tone, the, the worse the error rates and recognizing that person. And they've also produced large error rates with uh, women relative to men, that if you were a woman relative to men, it would be less likely to recognize you. Well, the root cause of many, uh, for much of this error was in the, the data uh, training data, the data set that was used to train where a predominant number of the pictures were of men who were white. And so like a baby, the algorithm learned to recognize very well the features of a, a face that were male and white, but because there weren't as many pictures of women, because there weren't as many pictures of people who were not white, it had a much harder time recognizing because it didn't have enough information to learn from. And why is that? Because the data set was not representative of the population. There weren't enough samples from these other groups for it to learn from. And so uh, more recent innovations around uh, facial recognition have has uh, been uh, done based on a more uh, representative sample and the data to learn from. And so th that has led to an improvement in facial recognition algorithms. So that's a very, very simple example. Um, fascinating to think yeah. that such big companies could have such a huge oversight uh, in their data collection and their training data. 
Yeah. And I think this happens again and again, uh, not again, I, I truly believe it's not intentional. I, I don't believe that IBM or Microsoft or Amazon intentionally said, you know, mustache twirling, I'm going to keep women and people of color out with my facial recognition. Now, I don't want them to recognize. I don't think they did that. I think honestly, what happens is if you look at uh, the composition of people who are uh, employees who are creating these algorithms, it reflects uh, and it's very similar to the composition of the data set. So if you take it down to a personal level, I think any one of us can imagine that we're hired to build this program. We're a programmer. We're going to have this facial recognition algorithm. At the first step, maybe when you're you're developing it, the first thing you might test it on is your own face. Yes, of course. And then, and then the, the the person next to you in the in, in your cubicle or the, to the left and right. Let me make sure it works on their faces. And then you might do it on your friends, you know, and other people in the, in the company. But if uh, most of the people in the company happen to look like you and you happen to be white and male, and then you try it out, then already you might, you're not even thinking about, wait a minute, maybe I need to test on people who are not like me. I mean, I think that typical human being might internally think that way. And it's not until we have research and advocacy like we have now that prompts people to even begin to think, wait a minute, let's stop and see who else this impacts. And should this, how do I make the software work for people that don't look like me, that we can start to begin to see some changes? Just really opening up the opportunity for more, sort of more people's data, which I, I can see is a little bit controversial as well. People don't always want to uh, give away their data uh, to, to train these algorithms. But of course, yeah. that is going to be what perhaps transforms the, the, the fairness of them as they run our daily lives. In that yeah. same line, um, we're talking about, uh, or you speak a little bit about objectives uh, in your paper and how for firms, the objective is money and clicks and attention. Can you talk a little bit about how those objectives might create algorithms that cause harm? So um, objectives, incentive alignment is going to be in a very, very important part of this conversation of how do we make uh, algorithms fair or just how do we make algorithms uh, reduce social harms, even if, it, uh, if fairness is not the goal. As an example that we talked about earlier, if um, this is what I refer in the paper, if Facebook is uh, as a for-profit company, is main objective is to be profitable to its shareholders and to, to continue on based on that profit, then uh, it's not surprising that their algorithms are going to be designed to be profitable, right? Yeah, so, right. but uh, that's not necessarily controversial, nor should it be. If it's a for-profit company, then that's what it's supposed to do. But if the source of the profit is, uh, as the example I gave uh, a moment ago, which is I'm finding that young women are clicking a lot on content that's being fed to them about it's great to be anorexic or it's great to be bulimic because now you'll look thinner, which is harmful, right? It's harmful to put those kind of thoughts into young impressionable women. But if, if Facebook's objective is to be profitable, the algorithm finds if I put content like that out there, people are clicking more, which is going to lead to more profit. Then that's what the algorithm is going to do, you know. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. And so, in terms of um, being able to reverse that, uh, in terms of incentive alignment, I think it's going to take 
putting other incentives uh, out there that the objective is also accomplishing. So for example, on, in the simplest form, uh, Facebook were be, to be told, and this needs to happen at the algorithm level as opposed to uh, some, something else. Hey, can you put in a secondary objective where it is, you know, go ahead and find the, uh, the kind of content that requires the greatest clicks or that generates the greatest clicks, I should say, but conditional on it's not content that's going to lead to women starving themselves. And here are some of the key words that are associated like anorexia, bulimia, throwing up, uh, don't eat for days, make sure that th that content doesn't contain these words. Then that's certainly very, very achievable. As an example, Facebook did do that when they were told not to disseminate or allow dissemination of mis misinformation and harmful content right before the elections, the most, most recent presidential elections. And so for a period of time, as um, was told by Ms. Haugen, you know, in her testimony, they accomplished that. And then after the elections were done, then they started to turn off things, according to her. So, uh, you know, certainly achievable to do that kind of thing. But of course, once you implement something like that, maybe you do get less clicks. And so perhaps, uh, yeah, Frances Haugen's testimony was so revealing to the way that Facebook considers its algorithms and uh, how they're uh, training those objectives. And so for them to take away some of those attention-grabbing terms, perhaps they uh, then lost money and needed to change back to allowing those terms again. It's a really difficult to wrap your head around how those things can be okay in the way that our society is. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and to your point, uh, Jordan, they probably, they may have lost money. So they were incentivized to, you know, reverse, but this is this, this, this uh, question of money at all costs versus uh, some restraint for the public for the for the good of the public it's not a new question within our society we have examples where there was some restraints put in and yet the company survives survives and flourishes so you know at one point I was um, in my career prior to academia I used to work in the entertainment industry and so uh, using this as an example you know you have the FCC who puts on some uh, has regulations around what kind of content, can be broadcast um, for mainstream TV. Like no swearing on live TV. Exactly. No swearing, no nudity, no uh, ultraviolet content. What, could that plausibly generate more ratings if you provided that get, and therefore more profit? Absolutely. You can, the company, these entertainment companies potentially could be even more profitable if they are allowed to show all these things. But yet the FCC says, nah, you know, without restraining its growth. And I don't know if anybody would argue, oh, you know, ABC has been less profitable and detrimentally so because these regulations were put in place about what kind of content that they can, you know, put on, you know, primetime television. So we have models of what's been done in the past with our um, society where uh, there doesn't have to be some kind of severe penalty placed on companies in exchange for some kind of restraint in some of the content to protect public good. That brings a really interesting uh, perspective for PPI about policy and what are lawmakers trying to do to corral some of this algorithmic harm? Are the regulations that they're bringing about 
uh, affecting type this type of content, like with the FTC, or is something else happening there? Well, I can tell you what I'm aware of. Uh, so over the last few years, there have been some, I'm thinking about the federal level. Uh, there are some states that are doing things too, like California, but uh, I'm going to focus on the federal level for a moment. There have been some bills introduced within the last couple of years, but uh, within those last couple of years, they've they've languished uh, in the committees without much momentum. Although there, the, what the example I'm going to give actually within the last week, there's been new developments. But there was the Algorithmic Accountability Act that was introduced in 2019, where it was uh, as you know, I'm I'm doing this at armchair length, uh, not in the the rooms where this bill was discussed, but. It, it appears, based on my read, to be um, an attempt to do something similar to what the European Union has done with GDPR, uh, and now a draft of a new algorithmic uh, uh, leg legislation that's going around in the EU, which is, hey, let's put some boundaries around the use of data and the use of these algorithms, especially if they're making critical decisions about people. But once it was introduced, uh, it just languished. It didn't I, I think the last time I looked at it, it was in the um, the Committee on Consumer Protection and Commerce, and it just sat there. And so, interesting enough, uh, I think it was last week, don't quote me on, on that, but I think they, the same legislators just reintroduced it uh, as Algorithm Accountability Act of 2022. So, it could be, because, maybe it languished because of the composition of lawmakers in the last administration and now we've have a new administration and so it's maybe getting a, a refreshment and maybe new blood pumping in terms of the momentum of that uh but that's been in my opinion my impression of uh movement around legislation that there hasn't been much yet in the u.s uh certainly not compared to if we look at the eu as a a good proxy or counterpart there's been much more activity in the EU around uh, accountability for algorithms. And it would be great to see more. I mean, there's another one called the Paid Act, but it was specifically associated with auto insurance, again, introduced in 2019, again, languishing. And in, in this particular case, it was going to be a bill about uh, precluding um, insurance-specific algorithms from using certain types of information uh, to make uh, decisions on premiums. You know, uh, included credit score, included gender, race, et cetera, et cetera, location, you know, you know your zip code. So it would be great to see a little bit more activity um, in this arena. Uh, uh, hopefully there will be, because now is the time more than ever to start getting our arms as a society around algorithms. You know, they're still relatively new. They're not entirely new, but they're certainly becoming way more embedded in our lives than ever before. And uh, I think there's this assumption that these are efficient, they're, they're, they're accurate, they're fair, and it's based on really decades of mathematical thinking, you know, that we in schools have been taught for generations without some kind of question about, wait a minute, is it creating this disparate impact uh, for groups of people? whether it's protected classes like race, gender, or age, or even unprotected classes like level of education or um, level of income. Uh, I think it, now's the time to really stop and examine. And using the analogy I said a moment ago, if I'm the programmer and I'm programming based on what I know in my world, often we don't stop and think about, oh, wait a minute, what about other people 
and their experiences outside of that and will it work for them? I think we need to rigorously start doing that and then putting in some forms of regulation that are analogous to what we have today in other arenas that support business and the flourishing of business, but yet protects the population as well. That's a really big issue for PPIs to make sure that when we are creating regulations, we're not unduly um, boxing different groups out of the market. Uh, you mentioned GDPR in Europe, the general data protection regulation, uh, which is a groundbreaking privacy and uh, data legislation in Europe that is protecting consumers and creating um you know, personal data ownership for individuals um, and giving them a lot more control over their data. And mm -hmm. what one of the sort of outcomes of that has been a lot of small companies have really struggled to adhere to those new regulations. And so for thinking about regulating algorithms where you have big companies and small companies developing them and, and feeding data into them to try to create the next new big thing is how do we create a system that doesn't unnecessarily box those smaller companies who are, you know, one of the backbones of the American economy out of uh, being able to compete with the larger companies. That is a, a big issue, and I appreciate that challenge um, because we want to be able to sustain um, an ecosystem where new companies can start, flourish, and rise and bring new innovation to the society. So uh, this is a very difficult question, Jordan. Um, I think that uh, open source could be one potential solution because the nice thing about open source technologies is free theoretically yeah. speaking, or, or minimal, of minimal cost. And other, another thing that's uh, nice about open source is that it, it maybe even more so to some extent than commercial companies, it really can bring a diverse set of people who have the right skill set who are creating these open source uh, pieces of software technology to come together, kind of like crowdsourcing and give their yeah. point of view, their side of the story in the building of these solutions. And so, um, I think that could be one way that it can help both companies, large and small, to, to accomplish these objectives. Um, uh, I would love to uh, see a scenario where, for example, uh, very, very common types of algorithms like recommendation algorithms or um, what we call classifier algorithms that are making decisions of, yes, you get a loan, no, you don't get a loan, you know, et cetera, be built in an open source fashion where you have anybody who wants to contribute and build on these things can build because um and then then provide that as as uh, a use to businesses because smaller businesses quite often are going to buy off the shelf or use something off the shelf right they may not necessarily build it themselves they might if, if it happens to be a small tech business they might build this little piece for their new for their new product but they might they're quite often getting off the shelf or available items from other sources. And so having something that's open source can allow a level playing field where if we were to go to something like uh, GDPR in here in the US, it would not um, hopefully over, if it's done right, will not over overburden small businesses and being able to comply because there's something that's open source that is already built to help comply and is available to a wide range of, of organizations. Nonprofits face the same issue, right? So Yeah, absolutely. And as a programmer myself, I know how 
valuable open source code is I probably wouldn't be able to code at all, but for learning from others and, and getting those diverse perspectives. So there's really a lot to unpack there and, and be excited about for the future. Absolutely. I benefit from open source, like, for example, based on the type of research I do, which is heavily uh, statistically and econometrically based, I'm a power user of R. R is an open source programming, statistical programming language, you know. Um, if I had to rely on commercial software, I don't know if I would have been able to do as much as I did as a PhD student, for example, where I didn't have any money. <laughs> so Yeah, yeah. And those licenses can be expensive. Yeah. So just to wrap it all up, if you wanted to leave our listeners with a perspective on what is being done to understand and better shape algorithms in our society to be more beneficial, what would you say? Well, I, I think uh, one of the biggest things that's happening now is simply awareness. You know, um, many years ago, I'm going to say maybe even five years ago, most people didn't even know that an algorithm can be unfair or that an algorithm can be biased. And so uh, there's this thing, ironically, it has the word bias in it, but there's this thing in research known as machine bias, where studies have found that, uh, you know, quite often in many conditions, human beings will assume the machine is right because it's not human, it's based in science and math, et cetera, and so it must be right. And, it, and we will blindingly, think therefore and follow whatever the, the the machine prescribes so the fact that now there's an awareness that that may not always be the case is huge it's huge because without awareness then you can't do anything else to make any of the changes so i think more than anything else right now uh the fact there that there's a, a spread of awareness that the machine is not always right and that it can be unfair in some conditions is a major step towards additional improvements. That's amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation with you. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.